TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Hi, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me. I'm Felix. And I'm Me here. How are you guys doing tonight? Doing well. How are you? Spending time in the classroom? Yes, I taught today. <laughs> so you know how it is when you walk into the classroom and you have one of those magical days where everything just goes exactly oh, the way you want it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that did not happen today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you have good days and bad days. You what have can I tell you? And, bad yeah. days, totally. and the beautiful thing about the way we teach is it almost doesn't matter because the participants bring so much insight. Yeah. But it's nice for me to feel like occasionally I had a little bit of value, but you know, it doesn't <laughs> happen all the time. semi useful every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, enough about me. This is going to be a fun episode because we're going to do two things. Number one is it has been a busy year for IPOs. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. tonight we thought we would each bring in one or two companies from the IPO class of 2021 that we think represent a sign of the times, meaning they represent something Mm. very specific happening in our economy, in our culture, in our consumption patterns at this very minute. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. And then we're going to do letters from listeners. Finally. So how does that sound, guys? Sounds wonderful. Let's do it. Okay, great. Okay, as I said, it's been a busy year for IPOs. Already we've seen 250 companies go public this year. And I think about a hundred more are expected to follow before it's amazing, January. Huh? It's a it torrent. Is, <laughs> exactly. So we each thought we would bring in a company that we are paying really close attention to because we think they represent something very significant about where we are in this moment in time. So Felix, what did you bring in? So I would like to talk about Rivian, mm. the electric vehicle company that I think it will go public sometime end of October, sometime in November with evaluation. Of course, this is a rumor at this point in time, but we think it might be as high as $80 billion. $80 billion. So I think Ford has a market cap of $60 billion. <laughs> yes. And the Ford valuation includes the stake that they have in Rivian. Yeah. So I think the Rivian story is really fascinating for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. So the first really interesting observation is they are essentially controlled by Amazon mm-hmm. in really amazing ways. So Amazon has a fairly large stake. We think it's around maybe 20 to 25%. But also... 
the main commercial opportunity for Rivian, even though they're known for producing electric vehicles, both trucks and SUVs, mm -hmm. really their main commercial prospect is delivering up to 100,000 delivery vans for Amazon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at the details, Amazon has every degree of flexibility you can possibly imagine. They can buy the 100,000 if they want, they can buy nothing. And so what I find fascinating is that, practically speaking, the models that I think I would be most excited about, the pickup truck and the SUV, is not something that they will produce at large numbers at all, because they have to do whatever Amazon wants them to do. And I'm guessing a large part of the valuation just comes from Amazon itself. Yeah, Felix, I have been following this company as well. And I have to be honest with you, I don't know what to make of it, because the, <laughs> none of these vehicles are on the road yet. <laughs> Those small details. And so right. <laughs> it's unclear whether they're going to be any good at all. My personal sense is that the consumer vehicles, the pickup and the SUV, mm -hmm. those are almost like the marketing front face of the company that will create consumer buzz and brand building and sex appeal. Right. But the real business is the Amazon business. And if Rivian can be the supplier of electric vans for Amazon and other logistic companies, that's a big deal. But it's also a big if, right? Because we don't know if they could do it because we haven't seen the vehicles in action yet. I mean, I think that's right, young me. And of course, that's emblematic of a lot of things in the IPO market today, mm -hmm. which is when you see these kinds of frothy times, it's easier for companies with less potentially obvious revenue to kind of become public, which is both wonderful and kind of problematic. The two pieces that strike me as really interesting here, Felix, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it. One is explore a little bit more about what you think Amazon is doing. Like, what are they really doing? And in particular, is there something going on here competitively about anybody who is a reasonable alternative to Tesla being valued and being thought of and being valuable to people like Amazon as an alternative? Mm. It feels like there's just enormous appetite for anybody who is a electric vehicle manufacturer other than Tesla. I think that's exactly right. And what's really interesting about Amazon's choice is this is obviously all about last mile delivery. Right. And I think even now, there was the sense that this is not something that you will do yourself. You will farm it out to UPS, to independent contractors. And what's really interesting regarding Amazon's choice, if this is really indicative of where they will go, we will see a fully integrated model that even includes last mile delivery, which is, of course, the Achilles heel of e-commerce. Yeah. And maybe running alongside that is the point that Mihir raised, which is the valuation, I think, is in many ways an indication of how hungry investors are for something in this space other than Tesla to put their money into. Yeah. But also, I think, how skeptical they are about legacy car makers yeah. and their ability to pivot in this space. If you think about General Motors, their CEO, Mary Barra, is trying to reposition that company as a growth tech company. And very recently talked about how she wants the company to build a platform of services. Right. And is predicting that the company can conjure up, I think, something like $80 billion in new revenue from new services by the end of this decade. Mm. In other words, she's promising exponential growth in a bunch of complementary services that don't even exist today. And yet you don't see any of those promises embedded in their stock price right now. And so she's trying to kind of ride this wave of excitement 
about how this industry is moving in a different direction. And mm-hmm, yet mm-hmm. you don't see the confidence building in investors, even as she tries to lay out the story of how they're going to do this. Mm-hmm. And then meanwhile, Rivian is being propped up by an $80 billion valuation. It's an interesting sign of the times. And I think that's exactly right, Young Me. It tells us maybe more about the market and the mm-hmm. hunger for returns than it tells us about the attractiveness of this business. Because one of my concerns is, aren't many investors confusing new and attractive? Yes, electric vehicles are new. That's like an amazing category. But how structurally attractive is it? Right. And is the excitement more about, oh, excellent, here's something new? Or is the excitement more about, oh, my God, we think this is a really amazing business? I'm not so sure. Fascinating. This will be a great one to watch. Okay, Mihir, what did you bring in? So I couldn't resist bringing a little bit more than one because that's my (laughs) pathology on this podcast. So, you know, I just think the sector that is fascinating is biotechnology. So in this remarkable wave of IPOs and SPAC IPOs, we have had a sector that has loomed even larger than ever before, and that is healthcare and biotechnology. What's the backdrop to this? Major pharma valuations are actually quite low. So big pharma is going nowhere and nobody really loves them. And then you have this set of new companies coming up that are getting valued at extremely high levels. And there's two themes I wanted to highlight, and I have an example for both. The first theme is every biotech company now wants to speak of themselves as a platform. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. if you think about the old model of pharma and biotech, we will develop a product that will solve Alzheimer's. Great. We're going to bet on that product. Yeah. Everybody now wants something different. They want something that is replicable. They want a technology. They want a platform. Mm -hmm. And so the classic example of this, of course, is Moderna. And it's real. That's right. And it's real. It is really like we are doing messenger RNA and we're going to figure out new ways to do things. Just so we understand it, Moderna got to be valued pretty close to Merck a couple of months ago Mm -hmm. because (laughs) they were that richly valued. And then what is everybody else doing now? They're aping that path and they're speaking about platforms. So a classic example is this one called Ginkgo Bioworks. 20 plus billion dollars mm-hmm. of valuation comes public via a SPAC. And they talk about themselves not as a product company, but as a platform company. And the reason I think this is fascinating is it feels to me like, okay, we are going to talk about these businesses like services. Mm-hmm. We are going to talk about these businesses like replicable technologies that investors demand. So we will mimic that language. And then you get a $20 billion valuation instead of a $2 billion valuation. <laughs> so that's one big trend, which is just kind of like, let's make biotech into a software business. Wait, so Mihir, can you comment on whether you believe there's credibility behind that language? Yeah. So take Ginkgo Bioworks. My understanding is that they are a synthetic biology company. And the idea is to use genetic editing to harness living organisms to produce a whole range of industrial and pharmaceutical chemicals. The idea being that there's a process to doing this. That's right. And they are really good at that process. And it's replicable. Exactly. And you can keep doing it. think of that process as being a platform. That's right. doing lots of different things. And some of those are real. So CRISPR, gene editing, mRNA is real. Mm -hmm. The -hmm. question is when you wrap yourself in that language and you don't have that much revenue or that much proof behind it, then you have to be concerned whether it's real. But the more deep point I think is it feels like the entire industry is pivoting to ape a language and something that may not be true. So for example, in vaccine land, 
when Novavax came out with a vaccine in a very traditional way, it's not a platform-based company. Mm -hmm. So nobody cares. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. nobody cares. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like the way you think about a business is changing. And then now what is major pharma doing? They want to be in the platform business. Mm -hmm. To your point about GM, what is GM doing? They want to be in a services business, mm -hmm. right? So everybody is aping the same investor-led recipe for success. Mm. One of the things that I'm sometimes confused about is I understand the more you can imitate the language of technology, right. the higher the valuation of your business. And that's, of course, an older trend. Many companies that say, oh, we're a data company, we're a technology company. Basically, everyone is a technology company right now. Exactly. But when I think about the logic, so say I have something that is particularly valuable because it can be understood and it can be repeated. Yes. Should I really believe that that means you are the only one who can do exactly. this? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And in a exactly. really interesting way, the COVID-19 vaccine is actually a good example of mm -hmm. that. Yes. So how many potential partners did Pfizer have when it decided to partner with BioNTech? BioNTech wasn't the only choice. Yeah. It chose to work with that particular company. But there are other companies with very similar capabilities. What proved to be the sticky point, the really hard thing to do? Manufacturing. Yes. Yeah. We couldn't manufacture this thing at scale for a long time. And it took a traditional company like Pfizer with just amazing manufacturing skills in order to pull it off. And so I wonder if we confuse the language of technology yes. and the network effects that truly exist in tech companies but exactly. don't exist in pharma. That's exactly it. What is actually adding value? Totally, Felix, you said it exactly right, which is we're confusing what the actual sources of value are for a platform in technology with what is going on here. And I think what's really concerning about all this is, A, well, value will become misallocated. But also, now every major pharma company wants to become a platform company. You know why? Because <laughs> they look at Ginkgo Bioworks and they're like, how do you get to 20 billion? I'm stuck at 80 billion or 150 billion and I've been stuck there for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got to become a technology company. I've got to become a platform company. And that feels really upside down in an odd way. I don't know, Youngmi, what do you make of all this? Well, I guess I'm a little bit more excited about this new wave of life science companies, yeah. at least for lay people like us who aren't deep, deep into the science. We don't know yet how replicable these processes are and what differentiates the companies that do this really, really well. Mm -hmm. And so even messenger RNA, you look at that process. So yes, there are absolutely maybe half a dozen, a dozen companies that are doing this in a very exciting way. And they kind of represent the frontier of this. Is it going to be the case that all of them emerge as being equally good yeah. at managing this process? I don't think we know yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is it the case that there is some advantage to having a more sophisticated set of processes over time? So take Moderna. Mm -hmm. They have an early lead and they are essentially doing their R&D under such an intense spotlight. And yet they're managing it. Yep. Is there a first mover-ish kind of advantage? Does yeah. this give them a yeah. five-year... 10-year advantage over other companies and therefore does it enable it to build some of the manufacturing capabilities and partnerships that you need mm. in this space? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I honestly don't know. Yeah. One other thing I'll say is that I do think that there is something about becoming quickly embedded because this is such a heavily regulated industry mm -hmm. that your ability to manage regulatory processes around the world is in and of itself a competence oh, that if you sure. can begin mm -hmm. to get for really sure. good at Absolutely. and get really mature 
mature at quickly. Yeah, it gives absolutely. you a leg up. So I do think some of these advantages build over time. I think your basic point, though, Felix, is exactly right. It could be that we are putting value on the wrong thing. But I love your comment, young me. I think this sounds exactly right for me. mRNA has great potential in oncology. And I think we will learn a lot which companies are now really good at taking the basic insight mm -hmm. and apply it to some other category, apply it to oncology. And the speed with which you can do it, maybe that makes all the difference, right? Often in mm -hmm. pharma, speed is really of the essence. If you're first, that creates some advantage. And if you can be first repeatedly, then I think yeah. I would definitely want to invest in that company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With technology companies, one of the ways they sustain their value over time and their lead in the market is by their ability to hire the best people. Right. And so if you are a Google or if you are an Apple, you can hire the best engineers, you can pay them the best, yeah. you can attract the best talent. And I think the same might be true when it comes to life science. You want to attract the best scientists, the best people. And so I do think that these advantages tend to build over time. Yeah. And the other advantage, of course, is the capital markets themselves. Yeah. Good point. So Ginkgo raises $1.52 billion. Moderna has gone from a year and a half ago being valued at $10 billion, and it got as high as $200 billion. It's now down to $125 billion. Yeah, <laughs> the swings are amazing, The no? swings are amazing. <laughs> and so yeah. it's something we see happening more generally, right? Which is we see people using capital markets and the ability to raise capital mm -hmm. to create an advantage, along with your talent story. And yeah. by the way, they can be complementary, which is look at my stock and look at Pfizer's stock. Yeah. And then who do you want to join? Right. So and true. so that's the other piece of it. But just going from 10 to 200 and then going back to 120, what other indication do you need that we have no <laughs> idea what these yeah. companies really are actually worth? And Ginkgo is on a similar roller coaster ride because a short seller comes out and says, wait a second, this thing is a house of cards. Yes. <laughs> and so now there's a really bright light shining on these things. Because when you're at that $20 billion market cap, the other thing that happens is you become a vehicle for people to take positions. <laughs> and then you're in a yep. whole new world. Totally. So fast. Like with the Rivian, it's a sign of the times. Mm -hmm. And so it has lots of consequences all around. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Young Me, what'd you bring us? So I brought in a very different company. By the way, I thought that was fascinating. And again, a real sign of the times. The company I brought in, a little bit, maybe not as prominent, but I think is a sign of the times, is, are you guys familiar with the Duolingo language learning Oh, yes. App? Oh, yeah. They offer 40 different languages on their app. They actually went public in July, mm -hmm. and they have a market cap of, I don't know, roughly five, six billion dollars, depending on the day. It's free to use, but it also offers a paid membership that gets rid of all the ads. And I think about 5% of its users are paid users. It's probably going to generate close to... $200 million in revenue this year, and it is the highest grossing education app on both Apple and Android. Hmm. And it's growing really rapidly. So it closed out 2019 with about 27 million monthly active users. It closed out 2020 with 37 million monthly active users. Mm -hmm. And part of that, of course, was the pandemic. People stuck at home deciding to mm -hmm. learn a mm -hmm. new language. But there is something deeper going on here, which is why I think this is a company that captures a lot of what's going on in this moment. So yeah. in general, the global market for online language learning is just booming. And there are a bunch of fascinating reasons for this. So number one, the cost of learning a language has essentially gone down to zero. You used to have to sign up for a language class yeah. or hire a yeah. language tutor. That is no <laughs> longer true. 
the time commitment has shrunk. So you don't have to go anywhere to learn. As long as you have your phone with you, you can be learning a language on your commute anywhere you go. Mm-hmm. In addition, what Duolingo has done really well is, and we've talked about this in the context of everything from trading apps to entertainment apps, but what they've done really well is engagement. Mm -hmm. There are dozens of other free language apps. Yeah. So it's all about execution and how well you can keep people engaged. And so what Duolingo has done is taken lessons from gaming and from social media to produce a product that delivers content in this really easily digestible format. It runs thousands of A-B tests on users to optimize that engagement. And then the final thing I want to mention here is that globalization trends have been around for a while now. But what's really different today, believe it or not, is Netflix. (laughs) Because of our ability to access shows in different languages, this has sparked this huge interest in learning some of those languages. So for example, the number of people around the world who are learning Korean. Yeah. 10 years ago, that number was like zero. <laughs> but as a result of K dramas like Crash Landing or Squid Game, yeah. the number of people learning Korean has just skyrocketed. And there are certain languages like Hawaiian or Irish where there are more people learning those languages then there are native speakers of those languages in the world. Oh my God, that's amazing. Crazy. So anyway, I find this to be absolutely fascinating. I mean, I love the engagement point, Youngmi, because I think that's the crux, right? The reason why so much online learning gets into trouble is because (laughs) what level of commitment do you need to actually complete the course Mm -hmm. to actually learn a language? I remember, you know, way back, I bought cassette tapes because I thought they should really improve my Italian. And of course, my Italian is as lousy as it ever was because I never really could muster the commitment. And so what we learn from gaming, what we learn from social media interactions, that is just really amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is fascinating, in part because education is fascinating because we happen to be in that business. Mm -hmm. But you're pointing to two more things. One is it's just the global nature of this. And this idea that so many people are interested in this at this moment, I think is fascinating. Mm. And the key thing that's lurking in the background that we haven't talked about, but I think we should just mention is, of course, we've seen this movie before a little bit in the sense that there is a company who's out there with a much more older generation product, went public 20 years ago, Rosetta Stone. Mm-hmm. And what does Duolingo <laughs> yes. do? Duolingo comes in much more modern, much more hip, much more easy to engage with, and priced totally differently Mm -hmm. and comes in deeply under Rosetta Stone. And so you kind of have like this incumbent there, Rosetta Stone, who is there and actually doing pretty well, but never really adapted to the next generation, never really adapted to allowing people in at a much cheaper level. And Duolingo is, from a business model perspective, really novel in that way, not just on the gamification, but like on letting in people early and easily and cheaply. And then upselling them. Mm -hmm, Where Rosetta Stone, you kind of create this barrier to adoption. But it's just so interesting to me to see someone not just gamify language learning, but also take the business model in a new direction with a really dominant player and just kind of clean their clocks in that process. Yeah. And I think in some ways it's 
business 101, when you lower the barriers to entry for consumers and make it so frictionless yes, for them to adopt exactly. something, mm-hmm. the total addressable market for your product just expands enormously. So if you think about learning a new language, the number of people who are truly, truly committed to learning a new language, to the extent that they're willing to plunk down some real money for it, is modest Right. <laughs> in comparison to the number of people who, if they can do it for free, are willing to try it. Try, That exactly. total addressable market is huge. And in fact, one of the biggest criticisms of Duolingo mm. and other language apps is, but do they really enable you to learn a new language? I mean, really. Yes. But I honestly think that criticism misses the point because I think what Duolingo has been able to do is take advantage of a really important consumer insight, which is what people really want to do is they want to dabble in different languages. Mm -hmm, In other mm -hmm. words, not many people actually have the patience and the commitment to become flawlessly fluent in a new language. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of people who are keen to dabble, to learn a little bit. In other words, what Duolingo is, in my mind, it's a form of language tourism. It really is. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to speak a little Korean. I want to speak a little Italian. I watched Call My Agent, and I would love to mm. be slightly conversant in French. And so it's a form of language tourism that enables you to engage in it from your phone, in your commute. I mean, in many ways, we're living in this moment where you hear a lot of talk about how the golden age of globalization is ending. You're seeing nationalism all over the world. But meanwhile, cultural globalization is alive and well. Oh, yeah. It is yeah. And it's here booming. to stay, right? It yeah. is absolutely here to say. And it's embedded in this form of language tourism that Duolingo enables. Can I ask something related to your point about language tourism? How close do you think are we, technologically speaking, to creating substitutes that don't rely on me learning the language. So we talked about Google Lens the other day, where you can point it at any sign or a menu and it translates in real time. Should I think of technology as a potential substitute for Duolingo and the language tourism kind of idea? So I think that's really interesting, Felix. I think it is true that technology will approximate it and already does pretty quickly. But I think that misreads what the real consumer demand is. Uh-huh. I think this dabbling demand that Young Me's putting her finger on, first off, it's a deep lesson about a misreading of consumer demand. Why do people learn foreign languages? Obviously, because they want to come proficient because they're moving to France. Answer, wrong. 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 The whole category is wrong. Yes. (laughs) And then the dabble is not something functional, like, well, I can replace it with technology, right? Meaning I could replace it with technology conceivably, Felix, but it's not a functional desire. It is a experiential desire. It is the desire to be able to say a few words in French and to hear a couple of things and call my agent. And that is a emotional and experiential feeling that I don't want to have it be substituted for by technology. And this is probably where Netflix comes in when I watch these Korean shows and you always see the subtitles where people say, my foot. And then you wonder, like, what on earth is that thing? Like, what can you possibly mean? <laughs> yeah. Language tourism is a really great term for it. It's yeah. like this slight yeah. curiosity about <laughs> what yeah. happens in a particular scene. One of the things I tell my students every year is that every consumer category eventually turns into either a fashion or an entertainment category eventually. So food, for example, has become fashion. It's become entertainment. Mm -hmm. Investing on Robin Hood has become a form of entertainment. 
being able to speak some French or speak some Italian or speak some Hawaiian, it's become a form of entertainment, but it's also become a marker of identity. It's become yeah. a little bit of who I am now. Right. Mm-hmm. So we try mm-hmm. on these different identities. And I think our exposure to other parts of the world through entertainment media like Netflix has really whetted our appetite for that in the same way that it whets our appetite to try different kinds of food. And so I just find the whole thing to be be fascinating. So true. Another sign of the times. Yeah. So anyway, that was fun, guys. Yeah, très bien, très bien. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. Okay, letters from listeners. They're amazing, no? They're so it's, fun. It's like so fun. And yeah. We should apologize. We can't really respond individually to each one, but... We have been going through them. What are some of the favorite ones that you guys have read? For me, I confess the ones I've really enjoyed. When I gave this pitch on condiments before the summer, <laughs> I got like crazy feedback, including from some people who are like, you know, have novel condiments, like 50 hertz Szechuan pepper oil, which is like oh, taking Szechuan wow. peppers and making it oh, into an oil. I love it. It is wow. fantastic. To your point, me here, it's also just interesting what people respond to. It's like, you will not believe the number of messages I got regarding my crash landing recommendation. <laughs> oh, yes. It was like completely out of control. I almost felt like an obligation to form a club or something. Yes. My favorite line was the listener who wrote, my soul needs Felix to discuss K-dramas more. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there are all of these comments that are really substantive, where this is the other thing that I love, just how attentive listeners are, how they point out the flaws in how we talk or think about a particular issue. That's the other part that I really love. Yeah, Exactly. So let's take a couple questions from some of these listeners. And we tried to pick questions that multiple listeners asked so that we could try to capture some of the themes. But here's a listener from the UK who writes, you guys are awesome. Thanks for doing the podcast. Thanks for listening. I read recently that the number of private company unicorns, private companies with valuations of a billion dollars or more, has now reached 1,000. Obviously, there are lots of high-profile companies like SpaceX and Stripe on this list, but there are lots of other ones most people have never heard of. In general, do you think a lot of these valuations are crazy and will end up being disastrous for investors? Thanks again for the podcast. It is truly a highlight of my week. 
So this listener is actually referring to a recent Crunchbase article, and we can link to it in the show notes. But what do you guys think about this? Sure. Well, it's a great question. So the first thing to say is, look, in general, valuation pretends to be a science, but it's a lot more of an art. And especially in the domain of these kinds of companies, where you're really looking way out into the future and trying to figure out what those relevant cash flows or income streams will be. I think what is particularly complicated today is that with low interest rates, with a very frothy IPO market, we know that those kinds of things historically tend to underperform. The problem is that's true on average. <laughs> and so there will be examples of those folks who will become 10, 20, 50, $100 billion companies. And so you have to kind of keep two thoughts in your head at the same time, mm. which is on average, things look very frothy, but you will hear of, and there will be exceptions to the rule that might be quite gigantic. I completely agree. We know that the really successful companies will be exceptions. And then we also know that knowing the exceptions in advance is really hard to do. So mm -hmm. that's the starting point. And then the other element is what we talked on the podcast before is, are you excited about new? Are you excited about this particular company being really in an excellent position? And I think the frothy valuations that I see often have to do, it's a new category, it's a new market, it's something we haven't done before. But always think, yeah, it's like how hard is it to imagine to do something similar? And if the answer is it's probably not that hard, then in the long run, if you're interested in the long run, profitability is not going to be that high. Yeah. Hmm. Youngmi, what do you think about all this? Well, so I'll offer a more optimistic counterpoint. The one thing I agree with is there are two ways to think about valuations. One is to look at any single company and try to make an assessment. And then the other is to look at them in aggregate. And it's the in aggregate piece that I find most compelling. So if you take the 1,000 private company unicorns that exist today, in aggregate, they're worth about $3.4 trillion. And the question is, is that crazy or not? So the entire combined market cap of the top 500 public companies is about $38 trillion, so more than 10x that. And so the question is, if I were to offer you the chance to invest your money in an index of these 1,000 private unicorns versus invest that same amount of money into the S&P 500, what is going to offer the better return over the next five to 10 years? Is it crazy to think that an index of these private unicorns will generate a 5x return, a 10x return over the next five, 10 years? I don't think it's crazy to think it could do that. And is it possible that that return would be greater than that of the S&P 500? I also don't think that's crazy either. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some different ways of thinking about this. But I think on relative terms, I think I might take that S&P 500. I might take the value portfolio. <laughs> but that says a lot about maybe me more than it says about the market. I think that last point you made is really important. So much depends on your own appetite, your personal yeah, appetite for risk. Absolutely. I might take that index of private unicorns. You'll take the S&P 500. And that's what goes back to your opening comment, which is this isn't less science. This is more art. Absolutely. Okay. Another question. We actually got a number of listeners asking us our thoughts on the Facebook files. So here's one listener from Canada. I feel like there's another Facebook scandal every week. The most recent one involves a whistleblower who leaked files showing that Facebook's own research revealed a lot of ways in which its platform creates societal harm. What are your thoughts on this story? Is this the beginning of the end for Facebook? 
or will the company survive this scandal the way it has survived other scandals in the past? There are two events that I think really speak to the position of Facebook today. One is debate that you just alluded to. And then the other one is, of course, the global shutdown, when they had a huge problem and mm -hmm. Facebook and all its affiliated companies went dark for most users. And you realize just the number of businesses that totally yes. rely on Facebook today. So and so my sense is, does Facebook have really serious issues that the company downplays? Mm. Yes, absolutely. Is there an easy substitute for Facebook? Not at all. I mean, the shutdown, I think, was really amazing just to see like how many things don't work if Facebook is mm -hmm. not working. And then, of course, you see it in devaluations that don't really move much in response to all the news. Yeah, I think what is distinctive this time around is the nature of the problem. So historically, when you think about problems for Facebook, especially from a regulatory or legal perspective, it is about bigness. Somehow bigness is bad, and so we have to break up Facebook. Mm -hmm. This problem is in a way, I think, harder because it is about consumer safety, and it's about the safety of the service. What is being alleged is harm. And so that is a different attack, yes. and it's not clear what the regulations will be that would potentially address it. And it's not clear what the fallout would be, but it does feel to me distinctive. I think this is such an important point. Right now, there are so many different kinds of Facebook critiques. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I think we need to do is to separate them out. As you put it, Mihir, there's the monopoly critique, the critique that Facebook controls too much of the online advertising ecosystem. It's too big. We need to break it up right. because it's anti-competitive. There's the data privacy critique. Facebook is reckless with users' information. Mm -hmm. So that's a different critique that requires a different set of remedies. The critique in this latest case is, as you put it, very, very different. This is the content critique, which is that what you see on Facebook is not a random presentation of information. If Facebook amplifies certain pieces of information, it de-emphasizes other pieces of information, and those choices are a result of the company's algorithms which are designed to optimize for engagement and by extension, often optimizes for information that is unhealthy from say a teenage health perspective, yeah. mental health perspective, public health perspective or political discourse perspective. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. this latter one is so nuanced because if you think about it, it is what all media platforms do to a certain extent. All media platforms. To a certain extent, this is what CNN does. This is what Fox News does. This is what the New York Times does. They're making choices in how they write headlines and how they present information, what goes on the front page and what goes on the back page. But obviously, the extent to which you do it matters. The degree of harm matters. The degree of harm matters. The scale of the platform matters. But it's a nuanced conversation about where to draw that line, right? Yeah. And I think there's two ways to think about the engagement clickbait kind of critique. One is we incentivize journalists, not only in Facebook, but also journalists in regular media companies to write the kind of stories that people click on. And in that version of the world, Facebook is more emblematic for a deeper issue that we have. Why is it that we have so much demand for misinformation? Why is it that, say, body image issues, why do they loom so large in society? And in that conversation, Facebook actually feels more like they're picking up on what's real in society today. I think the other view of the world is 
I actually would never really have thought that much about our vaccine safe or not safe because I just trust the FDA. And now Facebook serves me something mm. that says, you know, the FDA approved a vaccine that is really dangerous. And I'm creating the demand for these kinds of stories. And mm -hmm. what I was missing a little bit in the hearings in Washington is there wasn't a clear distinction between these two stories. Because in one type of universe, Facebook is really responsible for the demand for misinformation. Yeah. But in the first version of the world, it's hard to blame Facebook for what's more generally true today. But I think, Felix, this is really hard. I'm going to just try to push back against that. So it is clearly true that journalists do clickbait and Facebook does clickbait. And there's maybe no difference there. But I think the really qualitatively different thing here is not on the misinformation thing, but is on the body image thing and is on the Instagram thing. And that, I think, would be difficult to characterize as Facebook just providing people what they want. If we go down that path, one could say that about tobacco and could say, well, big tobacco is not really responsible for people's demand for tobacco. They just satisfy that demand. That argument proved very problematic because, in fact, they knew what the damage was that they were causing. And tobacco is addictive. That's the big difference. Well, in fact, that's the big commonality, which is many people think that's exactly true for social media and all these other things. That's why last week was different. That is the parallel of addictive behavior that is self-harming, especially with children. That is qualitatively different. I'm going to agree with half of what you said here. <laughs> Let me start with a part I disagree with, and that is... I think there's a difference between physical addiction and, I guess, psychological addiction, and I would distinguish between those two. And I do think that there is a behavioral accountability that individuals have to assume for themselves. Mm -hmm. The part I really agree with you on, though, is that the rules are completely different when it comes to children. And so the part I am most open-minded with respect to is regulation that puts limits on how much a preteen, for example, has access to Instagram or things that we know in a documented way are really, really mm. harmful for mental health. Absolutely. And then maybe to build on that, if in fact this is the right view of the world, then Let's make sure we apply the same kinds of regulations to teen magazines. Yeah. Let's make sure we rethink how teens are portrayed in movies. Let's take old-fashioned regular TV, young people's shows that are full with hmm. similar kind of content that has appeal for the same kind of reasons. So if, in fact, it is true that there's something like addiction that feeds of itself by being exposed online, then make sure we treat it as the much more pervasive phenomenon that it is and try to push back on all fronts that we have. Yeah. The one thing that just continues to sort of amaze me is that we wouldn't even be having this conversation if Facebook just unilaterally decided to put limits on who can access their product and how much. There's nothing to prevent Facebook from avoiding so much of this controversy by just acting with more restraint on its own volition, as opposed to waiting for regulation to come in and do it. Well, but that conundrum, young me, speaks to the core question, which is, is their business model so tied in with the idea of engagement and monetization of user information, that any limitation on that ability is completely antithetical to their business. And that is the conundrum, right, underneath yeah. all this. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this is obviously an ongoing story. Yeah. So I got to say, I like this listener question segment thing. 
We should do this again. That mm-hmm. was good. Yeah, that was great. We only got through two, but we're running out of time. <laughs> but we'll try to do some more next week. How's that? Sounds great. Okay. Thanks, guys. Okay. Picks. Felix, what'd you bring in? I don't know if you saw Snap introduced this mini inside Snapchat mm. that allows young people to explore opportunities to run for office, which I really thought was just an amazing idea. So it's literally called Run for Office. And what you do is you go inside Snapchat, you type in your zip code, you can choose which topic you're mostly interested in. Mm -hmm. So are you all about social justice, environmental quality, and so on and so on. And then it gives you all the offices that you might be able to run for. And... I think the app is reflective of an effort that they made in the last election to get people to vote. And they tried two different things. One was use influencers that encourage young people to go to vote because it really matters. Snap now in the youngest people category, Snap is bigger than Facebook. And what they found was that recommendations from friends far more powerful than any influencer can ever have. Interesting. And so now what happens in this app is say, I'm interested in running for office somewhere in the Cambridge, Boston area. And then I get connected to people via Snapchat, people who have experience with running campaigns, young people who are in office somewhere. I can also Mm. recommend friends of mine who I think would be good for running for a particular (laughs) office so that they can explore opportunities. Felix, is this just like a really long approach to telling us that you want us to endorse you for a local office? (laughs) Is that what's going on here? I would totally vote for you. He could be our supply chain czar. Supply chain czar, yes. I'm afraid to say that uh, ship has sailed a little while ago. So this is literally for young no, people no, no. to get them to be engaged. I have to say, Felix, I think it's such a great recommendation mm-hmm. in Cambridge, which is kind of having their city council elections. I have noticed that the placards are really disproportionately young people. Yeah. I wonder if there is something kind of going on. Because that would be really exciting. I think it's generally true. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be something about social interest engagement, and they're piggybacking on that in, I think, really interesting ways. That's a great recommendation. Mahir, what did you have? So, you know, we had this conversation last week a little bit about men and women in colleges, and it just connected in my mind to a book that has just come out, which is really spectacular. It's by Claudia Golden, who's a colleague in the economics department, and it's called Career and Family. Mm-hmm. And she has taken just this remarkably deep dive look at the role of women in labor markets. And it is just a masterful discussion of the issues. It's a masterful use of data, like really complex data. And the book has just come out. It's called Career and Family. And she's also got a video lecture of the highlights, which is also kind of fantastic. And it's called Journey Across a Century of Women. Oh, sounds great. It is really, really good. And it's deep in the data, but yet she doesn't get lost in it. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine by the title, Career and Family, it's all about navigating those two things mm. over time mm-hmm. and how that mm-hmm. has changed. Yeah. And so there's a bunch of actually really interesting prescriptions that come out of it. It's just a really beautiful work of scholarship that speaks to today's questions in a thoughtful way. So yeah. just a fantastic. I'm definitely going to check that out. That sounds fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Young me, what about you? Okay, so I'm going to take this in a somewhat different direction. 
Have you guys seen Squid Game? Oh. I, I tried. I tried okay. too. That is not my recommendation. But Good. Thank God. So Good. I have many, many thoughts on Squid Game. I found it absolutely riveting. It is not my recommendation because it is so violent. Yeah. And I'm still somewhat traumatized. I don't know. I can't watch yeah. it. I can't watch, I can't it, watch yeah. it. I was the opposite. I couldn't stop watching it. And you guys know me. I do not like to watch violent things, but I could not stop watching it. We thought it. we knew you. <laughs> well, I thought I knew myself. <laughs> But yeah. one of the many, many things that I found traumatizing about it is that it referenced so many of my most beloved childhood memories and the games I played as a little girl. Mm-hmm. And it has completely perverted those memories now. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. this recommendation is an attempt to recapture one of my most favorite games from my childhood. Uh-huh. So one of my most favorite things when I was a little girl was when I would come home from school, there would be a little vendor on the street making and selling a particular kind of candy that is referenced in Squid Game. And so my recommendation is for anybody who has watched the show and is keen to try to make this candy yourself, to do it. It is the simplest, simplest thing. Mm -hmm. And it has only two ingredients. It's got sugar and a little (laughs) pinch of baking soda. That's all it is. And all you do is you take a ladle and you pour some sugar in the ladle and you melt it over low heat. And then as it starts to melt and become liquid, you just put a little pinch of baking soda in it and it changes color. It becomes kind of frothy. You pour it out on a sheet. You smash it down till it's wafer thin. And then you put a little cookie cutter imprint on it. And that's it. While Mm. it's still hot. While it's still hot. Yeah. And as a kid, there was a little old man on the sidewalk who used to do that. And hmm. if you could cut it around the cookie cutter shape without it breaking, oh, you would get another. Yes, you would the, get another one the, for free. Yeah. So you get a second oh piece of candy, and yeah. you could keep it going. And the little old man would have different shapes, and some of them were much harder than others. Yeah. And hmm. so my recommendation is to make it at home. When my kids were little, I would make it in the kitchen. And it was so delightful. And again, it's my attempt to reclaim this childhood memory, which has been somewhat distorted by my viewing of Squid Game. (laughs) Well, I have to say, I'm just delighted that from the gore and violence of Squid Games, you were able to recover and retrieve (laughs) a wonderful childhood memory. Isn't that nice? That is actually totally heartwarming. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So that's it for tonight. Thanks, guys. We'll be back next week with another episode. You've been listening to After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.